This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the one and only Mea Culpa podcast, now on the Midas Touch Network. So be sure to look for the blue banner for the latest episodes of our show. And now for the breaking news. According to Signal, one of the nation's most accurate polling firms, a new poll out Wednesday shows that Joe Biden is actually leading in swing states, and he's also winning the popular vote. Now, my friends, we're a year out from the presidential election, so these polls, they're, they're all probably moot. But early in the week, the liberal press and CNN, sadly, all had their hair on fire about how low the president's polling numbers were, leaving voters to wonder, what do we do now? Well, I'll tell you what, settle the fuck down, Democrats, and stay on message. Because if Tuesday's elections are any indication, well, things are really looking up. In Tuesday's off-year elections, Democrats won bigly in red and swing states like Kentucky, Ohio, Virginia. I mean, Mississippi is another matter, but we'll get to that in a minute. There were big wins in Ohio, where they legalized cannabis and voted to bake reproductive freedom rights into the state's constitution. Abortion is now a constitutional right in Ohio, so let Ohio be an example for other states to follow. In Kentucky, Democratic incumbent Andy Bashir won against McConnell's handpicked guy, Attorney General Daniel Cameron. According to Chris Christie, Cameron was a rising star in the GOP until he decided to throw his lot in with Trump. And to quote Christie, let's face it, Donald Trump is political and electoral poison down ballot. Well, of course he is. I mean, didn't 2018, 2020, and 2022 teach anyone anything? Also, in a closely watched race in Pennsylvania, Daniel McCaffrey beat his GOP rival in a fill of vacant state Supreme Court seat. And in Rhode Island, former White House aide Democrat Gabe Amo has become the state's first black senator-elect. And thank you, Jesus, Glenn Youngkin, a woman-hater in sweater vest, lost his hold on power in Virginia, where Democrats won both the Senate and the House thwarting Yunkin's plan for a 15-week abortion ban and any chance of his running for the presidency in 2024. Well, weird stuff happened at the polls in Hines County, Mississippi, with thousands of people waiting in line to vote. Well, they just simply fucking ran out of ballots. And then a judge voted not to keep polling stations open until the problem was fixed. So... Elvis's cousin, a Democrat, didn't win. And wouldn't you know it, they ran out of ballots in mostly black and Democratic districts. I mean, that's not a fucking shocker, is it? Overall, Tuesday's elections were great for democracy. Well, and bad for Moms for Liberty and other MAGA affiliates. But we can't just rest on our laurels here because presidential races often come down to one thing and it's not civil rights. No. It's the economy, stupid. In other words, in the Trump Organization's massive $250 million minimum civil fraud trial on Monday, well, Donald completely lost his mind while on the witness stand. 
they have already been found guilty of overinflating the value of their assets. Now, the judge, Judge Ngoron, is deciding just how much it's going to cost them. And yet, Donald behaved like a belligerent little bitch. He yelled, he wouldn't answer questions, or he just fucking flat out lied. After a while, Judge Ngoron gave up. And then he just let Donald pretend that he was at one of his asinine rallies and not in a court of law. Monday, in a Newsmax interview filled with lies and bizarre commentary, Alina Habadabadabahaba said Donald's defense will be making a motion for mistrial because Judge Ngoron just wouldn't let Trump talk enough when he was testifying. She also said of Tish James, and here's the quote, She's just not that bright. And lastly, after trying hard to avoid testifying, on Wednesday, Ivanka Trump, or is it Kushner now, whatever, Ivanka became the last witness to appear for the prosecution. Unlike her brothers, she's just a witness and not a co-defendant in the fraud case. As she stepped out of her fancy car, the crowd in front of the courthouse started to chant, crime family. I mean, you really gotta love New Yorkers. And unlike her father, Ivanka kept her cool on the stand, speaking so softly that the judge had to ask her to speak up. But for the most part, Ivanka just couldn't recall much. She did, however, expose her husband, Jared, to criminal liability when she admitted that he had introduced the Trumps to the banker who helped them secure the fraudulent loans for Doral and the old post office in D.C. She just so happened to be the point person on both of those projects. And once upon a time, Ivanka was the heir apparent to the Trump empire. And now, well, she's just a witness watching as it burns. Now our guest today, General Mark Hurtling, spent 37 years in the American Armed Forces. He commanded every organization from platoon to field army. Most notably, Hurtling commanded the U.S. Army's first armored division in Iraq during the troop surge of 2007 to 2008 and retired as Commanding General of the U.S. Army in Europe. He joins me today as we try to make sense of the war in the Middle East. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so General Hurtling, welcome to the show, as always. It's really great to see you, my friend. And let's just jump right into it. The war in the Middle East is obviously on everyone's mind. Do you see, do you see an end in sight or do you think that the war will go on indefinitely? Uh, well, I wouldn't say indefinitely, Michael. And it's good to be with you again, by the way. Uh, I don't think it's going to be indefinite, but it's certainly uh, going to be, in my view, a long one because there's so much to be gained on both sides. It's going to be a fight. It's going to be a tough fight. It's going to be the kind of fight that I don't think Israel has experienced in the past uh, because of what they've said is their objective conditions and what they're trying to achieve. Yeah, but, but look, we're already, as an example— involved for, what is it, a year already between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, this is a whole nother, this is a whole nother beast. What if anything, what if anything could be done? What would you do with your vast military experience? You see, my problem is I'm engaging in a conversation which is somewhat difficult. One, I've never been to Israel. I know 
It makes my parents angry, makes a lot of my family members angry, especially my cousins. Uh, They're Sabras. They were born in Israel, the ones that live in Canada. And I'm saying to myself, I don't understand what's really fully going on there. More importantly, I don't understand the entire Middle Eastern political problem. I do understand thousands of soldiers coming in shooting and killing innocent people, murder, rape, uh, kidnapping, etc. That I certainly understand as a human being, but I don't understand the problem. You, on the other hand, have vast military experience. I may be wearing a military shirt. I'm wearing this in honor of Zelensky, by the way. Um, You have that experience. What, if anything, could be done? Ceasefire, no ceasefire, it's becoming a topic yeah, that it, it is. everyone has an opinion on. Everyone has an opinion, Michael, and I will say that I have actually been to Israel multiple times. Uh, when I was commander in Europe, they were one of the countries we were responsible for. They were uh, Israel is a country that was in what we call our footprint. Back in those days, uh, 10 years ago, when I was commander of U.S. Army in Europe, uh, Israel was part of our area of operations because it was separated at the time uh, between European Command and Central Command. Well, uh, within the last couple of years, they've been placed under Central Command, and that's a whole nother story. But I will tell you, I've been there multiple times. I've been with their military. My counterpart there was a guy by the name of Major General Shlomo uh, Turgeman. Uh, He went from the ground force commander when we were friends to being the commander of the Gaza division after I retired in 2014. And he understands Mm -hmm. this situation. He's now retired now. But when I was there the last time in 2012, he took me uh, throughout the country of Israel. He took me down into the, the south near Gaza. He showed me their intelligence collection capability. He took me into the West Bank, showed me their intelligence collection, took me up to the north. And what I tell, I'll share with you too, Michael, is, is I've watched the Israeli wars uh, for, for decades because I actually wrote a master's thesis on Operation Peace for Galilee, which was the Israeli fight in Lebanon in 1982. It is the most complex operation you can imagine. Uh, it's much different from Ukraine. You've got a country that's 250 miles uh, long uh, from, from north to south. At the widest point, it's 75 miles wide. You have uh, two nations, the Palestinians and the Israelis, both claiming that is their homeland. If you Mm -hmm. go to Jerusalem, you have three of the most uh, uh, fascinating religions. Iconic, yeah, Yeah, iconic. You have the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, a Christian site. Mm -hmm. You have the Temple Mount, and you have a, a major mosque for the Muslims, all within about 150 yards of each other. You can see each other from one location, and they all claim that this is their their most important religious site. So you have two nations who are fighting one another. Uh, You also have, in this case, an organization, Hamas, that is an extreme Islamist terrorist organization. They make al-Qaeda and ISIS look tame by comparison, and we saw that on October the 7th. In addition to that, uh, unlike, uh, and don't listen, by the way, I'm going to start off by saying, don't listen to anyone who compares this to Mosul or Fallujah or the Philippines during World War II. This fight doesn't compare with anything that we have seen in the history. There are some things we could learn and apply, but when you're talking about an organization that has thousands of terrorist fighters underground mm-hmm. in a subterranean environment with 2.2 million Palestinian citizens 
on top of them uh, and, and acting as a human shield. Uh, and then they go into Israel to attack and people say, hey, we, we got to have a ceasefire. Well, a ceasefire means that you have both sides saying they're going to stop fighting and determine what to do next under peaceful conditions. A ceasefire uh, hasn't, you know, Israel actually in the last two days has done a cessation of operations to allow uh, Palestinian citizens to go from the north to the south. But as soon as they created that window of opportunity, Hamas started firing rockets back into Tel Aviv and back into Jerusalem. So you can't negotiate with Hamas. But unfortunately, the Palestinian people, uh, for the most part, peace loving people, uh, they don't like Israel mm -hmm. for the most part, but they are caught in the middle. So, you know, it's a humanitarian crisis on top of a terrorist organization, on top of a nation, Israel, that's just been attacked and is fighting for their survival. You can't make it any more complex than that. How come the media then isn't discussing the rockets then if there was this partial ceasefire, right? How come there's no conversation about these rockets during this cessation yeah. being fired into Israel? You don't hear that. It's almost like only right now what I am hearing is Israel's attack upon the Gaza and a lot of the a lot of the reporters a lot of the journalists are pro Israel as you just said Israel is fighting for its right to survive I I get it the point is if that they are allowing for humanitarian purpose people to move from the north to the south they're dropping the leaflets also, not easy for any of these people. Leave your home, take your kids, you have whatever you can carry on your back. You know, go to, you know, go to the south where, as you know, Egypt is not letting anybody in. Uh, they finally let some people in. How come that's not being reported? Well, and I'll add one more thing. Not only is Egypt uh, having a hard time letting them across the Rafah Gate into the Sinai, into the Egyptian territory, but Hamas is not has not been letting them out. We got to remember that Hamas is the governing authority within the Gaza Strip. It's not the Palestinians. So it's both sides of that Rafah crossing that's difficult. And as you said, uh, Israel has attempted to get, you know, a couple of hundred thousand people to move from the north to the south. But in the first couple of weeks of this campaign, Hamas has been threatening to kill people if they try to do that. And they've been putting up roadblocks to do that. It's been very difficult to move uh, from that location to the south. And, and by the way, I'll, I'll do another uh, comparison from the north to the south of the Hamas or excuse me, uh, from north to south of Gaza is about 25 miles. That's the distance between Washington, D.C. and Manassas, Virginia, or the distance between downtown Manhattan up to about Westchester County. And there's only one road and it has a couple of hundred thousand people on it. And that road's been rubbled. And when you try and get on that road to leave, you have Hamas terrorists telling you to stop and shooting at you. But going back to your question of why haven't the journalists covered this, I think they have to a degree but it's easier and more emotionally charged to cover the humanitarian crisis, which certainly exists there. Uh, mm -hmm. These poor people, the families of people that want nothing to do with this terrorist attack, have been killed in many cases. Children uh, have been wounded and, and killed. And, and that is something that's emotionally charged, at, rightfully so. 
people will jump on that and say, look at what Israel's doing. They're killing, they're killing families, they're killing babies. And we've tend to forgotten that on October the 7th, there were over 1,400 Israelis killed by a terrorist attack, which some people have claimed are exponentially larger than our 9-11. So it, again, it's, it's complex, it's charged. And in addition to that, one of the things I forgot to mention is you have nation states, uh, Iran and Lebanon, who are drawn into this, as well as Syria and the United States. And Russia is a part of this, too, because they've been supporting Iran. So you, you boil this whole thing into a kettle and you say, how is Israel supposed to uh, destroy a terrorist organization that's literally a couple of miles from their citizens? Uh, and how do they do that without hurting the Palestinian population? And it's impossible. That's why I say you can't compare this to Mosul or Fallujah. Yeah, well, another big problem is on top of everything, while people are trying to get their hands around the humanitarian issue here, the loss that the Israelis uh, have suffered, the fact that there's still over 200 hostages uh, being held by Hamas. You start seeing now, I see more information about idiots pulling down the kidnapped um, signs of Israelis and so, than I see of the number of rockets that are being shot into Israel. But uh, you take all of this and then you get a statement from the former president, the idiot-in-chief, the former idiot-in-chief, says he could solve this problem. He could fix this whole Middle Eastern problem in 24 hours. By the way, identical to what he said, that he could fix Russia and Ukraine in 24 hours. Now, again, general, and you are a general. How could a guy who has zero experience, maybe two years at military school, how could he come up with a solution in 24 hours? What, what is even the possible solution to something like this in 24 hours? Well, I mean, if you look back at history, Michael, you know, first of all, he couldn't. I'll answer your question. He couldn't, obviously. But secondly, if you look at history, by the way, General, you do know that that was a rhetorical oh, question because I, I, I know every single one of my listeners right now was saying the same thing. Come on, General, just say it. The guy's full of shit. Well, I, I, I thought I'd better give you a straight up answer. I'm trying to do that as best <laughs> I can. So no, he couldn't. First of all, but secondly, if he could, uh, if he really thinks he could, he's, he he would probably be smarter than people who have been trying to solve this problem since the year 600 A.D. Uh, you know, there have been multiple fights between the Jewish nation and the Palestinian nation, and some of them have been extremely intense. And there is a built up cultural difference. And that's that's one of the things that I think the former president doesn't quite understand is that people are different from us. And there are hatreds that are different from ours. There are tensions that are created in different parts of the world. And that's why, you know, as as much as the current administration, uh, President Biden and Secretary Blinken and Secretary Austin are trying to tamp this down so it doesn't turn into a regional conflict and have more people hurt, much like they're attempting to control what's going on between Russia mm -hmm. and, and Ukraine. So it doesn't become a greater conflict than it already is, a deadly conflict. Uh, you know, it, it takes a lot of real 
understanding of what contributes to cultural norms, uh, what different people around the world hate. Uh, you know, there's there's a disagreement between New Yorkers and New Jersey. I know that because my wife's from New York, uh, and you know that too. That's mild compared to the intense hatred that is occurring between Israel and the Palestinians. Uh, and and it's reverberating around the world right now with the size of the, the Muslim population in various nations across across the globe. See, I would have said New York and Boston, right, which is, of course, right, the big rivalry. Better. But yeah, yeah, but that's that's all right. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Look, there's nobody that's under more stress than me, whether it's civil trials, criminal trials, litigation, $500 million lawsuit by the former president. I'm under stress. And this time of year can be a lot. Life can be a lot. I mean, let's face it. In this year, there was a lot. And it's perfectly natural to feel some sadness or anxiety about it. But adding something new and positive to your life can counteract some of those feelings. Look, therapy can be a bright spot amid all of the stress and change, something to look forward to, to make you feel grounded, and to give you the tools to manage everything going on. Therapy can really empower you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. Like me, sometimes it's everyday stuff that can be overwhelming. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, easy, and on your schedule. So find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Cohen today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash Cohen. That's better help. H-E-L-P dot com slash Cohen. Okay, so General then, over the weekend, Secretary Blinken met with various leaders across the Middle East, and many of them are hoping for a humanitarian pause in the war. So do you think that that's a good idea? And let's break it down. One, is it a good idea for Israel? And is it a good idea for America to be telling Israel what it is that they need to do? Well, I, I certainly think it's a good idea for America to be giving advice, uh, giving them some of the lessons learned that we've had from fighting terrorist organizations for the last 20 years, Michael. There's a lot to be learned from that. But, they, but, but I'd, I'd really stamp my foot in saying, again, this is a completely different scenario. There are some things you can apply in a terrorist fight against an organization that's underground, uh, underneath 2.2 million people. But it's going to be a whole lot different and it's going to be a whole lot more complex. Uh, but I think what the Secretary Blinken is attempting to do is not only uh, generate a pause on the Israeli sign to show good faith, but it's also primarily to get the hostages back. There's 240 mm -hmm. hostages from 30 different countries in that area. Um, if the fight continues, and I think Hamas, my opinion is that Hamas bit off more than they could chew. Uh, they, they didn't believe that it would cause as much uh, uh, action as what they're seeing right now with uh, Israel mobilizing 300,000 people. Um, but I think the most important thing for the United States and other nations is to get the hostages back. But in order to do that, you also give Hamas a pause. You give them the opportunity to reorganize, 
uh, it's difficult during that period to get additional humanitarian aid into the Gaza Strip for the Palestinians that are being dislocated. So, yeah, I understand why the administration is attempting to generate a pause. It's to free the hostages and to save lives. But I just don't believe personally that Israel is going to go for that unless there's a good faith effort uh, by Hamas to deliver more than just the hostages. Uh, they want to see uh, the individuals who were responsible for the October 7th attack punished and killed uh, because they are part of an, a terrorist organization. Right. Well, then let's just stick with that for one second when it comes to the hostages. Do you think that a ceasefire or a pause might help in the efforts to bring the 240 hostages, you know, back from Hamas? One would think that if you were Hamas and you actually cared, even an iota of their own people, of the Palestinian people, one, you wouldn't go ahead and you wouldn't have them put rockets in their windows, you know, from out to shoot out their kitchen windows. Um, on top of that, you see what's happening. You see the shelling. You see the attacks. One would think that they would say, OK, let's negotiate something. I don't know what it is. Again, that's why I have you on today, General. What is it that they could trade? It's going to have to be more than just a ceasefire. Yeah. Right. Um, it's going to have to be something more where Hamas doesn't end up losing. And by the way, this is the time for the PA, the Palestinian Authority, to step up and say, you cannot run Palestine any longer because the way that you ran it and the things that you're doing, you've caused 10,000 deaths. 10,000 by hiding or what, what that's right. Isn't the number like over yeah, well, between nine to 10? Just in this fight, there have been three other fights in the last 10 years where they've caused. I mean, the last one of the big operations in 2014, there were 2,500 uh, uh, Gaza residents, Palestinians and Hamas killed to 66 Israeli soldiers. We're way beyond that already. The same thing occurred in uh, 2021. And I don't know what the casualty figures there. But, but this, Hamas is an organization that really doesn't care about death. There is something called, uh, Michael, the Hamas Charter. And, and what that charter says is that Hamas uh, is basically an organization that it proclaims Israel will exist until uh, Islam obliterates it. And the jihad against Jews is required until Judgment Day. And compromise on who owns the land is forbidden. That is part of the Hamas Charter. It's written down. So this organization basically says we, we live to kill Jews. We live to destroy the state of Israel. And we will not give up until that happens. So when you're dealing with an organization that has that as their, let's just call it a constitution on one side, how do you negotiate with that kind of an organization? And even if there is a ceasefire, and the hostages are released, uh, there's still the requirement for what would Israel do against those who conducted an attack and killed 1,400 of their citizens. I mean, giving 240 hostages back isn't going to repay that debt. Not to say that you have to have that revenge factor, but it would be like telling you, hey, Michael, you know, after those two planes hit the, the World Trade Centers, uh, in three weeks, we're going to start negotiating with Al-Qaeda, and all they have to do is uh, give us 240 people back. But there's still going to be 3,000 people dead from the two World Trade Center 
uh, and the and the Pentagon or the the Pentagon strike and the Pennsylvania field. You know, how would any nation feel, especially if that organization continued to exist less than a mile from the border in underground tunnels that are still active? You know, I can understand the military objective of Israel saying we must destroy this organization. But in order to do that, you also have to destroy an ideology of a terrorist group. And that's very difficult. I mean, we've been fighting Al Qaeda and ISIS for 10 and 20 years now. And part of that organization still exists because we truthfully created more terrorists by going after the ones that that killed our citizens. So that's the dynamic of of a a counterterrorism fight that's so difficult to explain. You asked me at the beginning, Michael, what would I do as a military guy in this kind of situation? You can't fight. You can't win this fight with the military alone. I do go back to what happened in Iraq where the sons of Iraq and the and the the the, the government in some of the provinces said we've had enough of al qaeda we want to get rid of them we will join you in getting rid of them. You have to persuade the other time and as you just said the Palestinian Authority might be an organization or some of the nations in the area like Qatar or the the Emirates or Saudi Arabia. And I think that's what Secretary Blinken is trying to do. But that takes time. And you also have to persuade the Israeli government, uh, Mr. Netanyahu, not to continue the kind of policies that he's continued by putting down the Palestinians in Israel. Uh, so it, it is a two-edged sword that isn't just a mili- it doesn't have a military solution. It has a military and a political solution that has people living side by side. And by the way, we can also extend this to the fight between Russia and Ukraine. You know, you have two mortal enemies going at each other and it, it, Ukraine has a sovereign environment uh, where they want just their territory. And Russia is saying, no, you belong to us. It makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. It's so, the whole thing is just so absolutely sad. I have conversations, so many conversations with people, and everybody has a very strong opinion on what's happening right now uh, in the Middle East. And I always ask them two questions. The first question, what would the United States do if hypothetically, it was a whole group of Americans that were having some sort of a music festival, let's just call it in the Texas area, and a whole group of Mexican, uh, you know, jihadists, right, uh, broke through the wall, assuming that there is even a wall, since Trump, of course, completed that. Um, they They killed our citizens and, I mean, raped, beheaded, burned, took his prisoners, you know, executed. What would you want America to do? Because that just then morphs into the second part of the question. What is a reasonable response to that? And truth be told, I really haven't been successful in getting a proper answer. I get the answers. You know, I, I have one friend who was furious at me that I didn't agree with her in that they should level Gaza. So the only way to destroy Hamas is you have to level Gaza. And I said, you know, by leveling Gaza, there's quite a few innocent people there. They don't care. That's 
the one extreme. And then, of course, you have the others, the ones that are pro-Hamas on university campuses. Yeah. What's the balance? Well, you know, it, 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 let's, let's take your example one step further. And let's say those, those Mexicans that crossed our border into El Paso and killed, you know, 10,000 of our citizens and then took a bunch of, you know, 500 hostages back across the border to Juarez. Would we immediately bring down the hand of thunder and destroy that city if they were in underground tunnels? Uh, we wouldn't care a whole lot about what was on top of those tunnels, even though they might be innocents. I think there would be a, a good portion of our citizenry that would say that's exactly what we have to do. Uh, the, the difference, though, is that we have a very good relationship with Mexico and we could I, proclaim. I, I only use Mexico, well, but, of course, but, 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 as but, but, an, an example, example but. to use because it shows the complexity of this situation. We could go to the government of Mexico and say, we need your help in clearing these out. The government of Palestine is not helping clear out Hamas. In fact, they have allowed them to be the government of Gaza since 2006 because the Palestinian Authority does not have the leadership that can counter this terrorist organization. So that's the, the challenge associated with this. But we would not, I don't think, because the purpose of any government is to defend its citizens, we would not just say, oh, well, this attack just occurred. They're back in Juarez, Mexico now. Uh, we're not going to touch them because, uh, uh, you know, we just don't want to hurt any citizens. And, oh, by the way, we'll just wait and see the next time they attack, which could be next week. And, by the way, these same terrorists that attacked from Mexico said they're going to continue to do it. And even while we're considering what we're going to do, they're still firing rockets at us, trying to kill our citizens. Of course, you'd know the answer to that. The, the intent of yeah. a government is to secure their people. But, but what is happening in Gaza, what is happening in Palestine, what is happening in Israel right now is just so complex because of how constricted the terrain is and how you have these people living together, two different cultures living together that have been living together for thousands of years that just don't like each other. They hate each other. And they want which is funny because we're all related. We're both we're both Semites. Right. Right. Which is so hard. to. OK, I get it. I have issues with family, too. Right. You know, uh, but I certainly don't want to kill anybody. But yeah, the hatred runs. It runs thousands of years deep. So I, let me I was, ask you I this then, Jeff. Gen- if I can, Mike, I was told one time when I was in Iraq uh, by an Iraqi, by my counterpart there, Major General Rehad, uh, he told me it was interesting that that the Arabs and the Israelis can't get along when both of them greet each other with the word for peace, shalom and salam. And it, 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 it makes sense what you just said. Yep. You know, they are literally from the same earth. They both want peace, but for some reason they can't get together. Yeah. So let me ask you this then, because it's been widely reported that Israel's prime minister, Bibi um, Netanyahu, ignored intelligence regarding Hamas and that his approach to the war since has been excessive, basically to compensate for his mistake. The Palestinian death toll is reportedly over 10,000, somewhere in that number, right? Is what's happening in Gaza a genocide, in your opinion, which is the way that you constantly hear people talking about it? Absolutely. You know, again, yeah, I, I mean, I don't understand where they're using the word um, genocide from. Obviously, I understand why it evokes 
incredible emotional response. But is this genocide, no, in your absolutely opinion? Absolutely not. Not by definition. A genocide is an attempt to eradicate an entire culture and an entire nation. What Israel is attempting to do is destroy, not defeat, not put down, their, not a trit. They are attempting to destroy a terrorist organization. But unfortunately, as, as we've just talked about, the conditions of the battlefield are such that the Palestinian people are sitting on top of this terrorist organization. And there's no way to get to them because they're building their fortresses, their bases underneath the Palestinian hospitals, schools, neighborhoods. And, you know, how, how do you get to a terrorist organization if it's using those kind of conditions? And by the way, Hamas knows exactly what they're doing. This is a terrorist. I mean, it's fascinating to me. I, I was on CNN when the Al Shifra hospital uh, rocket incident occurred. Mm. And, uh, you know, and then a few days ago when the ambulance was hit, I don't have 100 percent facts and I can't say conclusively I know what happened. But because of my experiences in, in countries working against terrorist organizations, I have seen dozens of incidents where terrorists have used uh, Red Crescent ambulances to transport their fighters, their ammunitions, mm -hmm. and to not get hit. I have seen tunnels where terrorist organizations have built them either underneath mosques or underneath schools. So if they're struck and you even see the secondary explosions from the devices they've hidden in those mosques or in those hospitals blow up and you have proof of that, that people say, hey, you're still... You're, you're committing a genocide against the Iraqi people. That's exactly what's happening in Israel right now or in the Gaza, where they are trying to get the, to the Hamas terrorists, trying to get the Palestinians out of the battle space. But it's almost impossible to do that. And by the way, Michael, the other thing, you can't tell in this kind of environment who are the Hamas fighters and who are the Palestinian citizens walking around. You can't just say, you know, oh, oh you're, you're killing Palestinians when you can't really tell because no one wears a uniform. Uh, and and mm -hmm. the, the 10,000 figure you cited is what the, the, the Gaza uh, Medical Association, their, their, their medicine, uh, Ministry of Medicine, that's run by Hamas. Of that 10,000 casualty figures, you have to ask yourself the question, how many of them are terrorists? And how many of them are parents and children? And I'm sure there could be a figure, but it's very difficult. All of those things come together where you can't, in that kind of a number of killed and injured on the battlefield, you can't separate the terrorists from the citizens with any degree of accuracy. And how many of those injured or killed were killed by Hamas? Right. They, were, they were killing their own people in order to achieve Again, some objective. But, you know, I watched you. I watched you on that CNN uh, episode. And you said in that interview, and I think the quote was, that truth is one of the first casualties of war. And it applies to disinformation as well. Does Israel, in your opinion, need to produce evidence that they had reason to bomb that ambulance? Because that also became this sort of impetus of a reaction for people to start their nonsense, right? Their attacks on Jews and, 
and with the ripping down again of those things, and then the, the marches and so on, all of a sudden, Israel just decided to destroy that ambulance with a drone. Look at all the dead bodies. Look yeah. at what's going on here. First of all, it, you know, the question again, you know, do they need to produce the evidence? And then the real question I'd like to ask you is, even if they do produce evidence, clearly you're not going to get the PA or Hamas to say, well, Israel's right on this one. Yeah, they got us. Yeah. Who's going to believe them anyway? Yeah. Well, the, the quote I used dates back to the ancient Greeks. It's the truth uh, is the first casualty of any war. Uh, but there's a corollary to that that I learned in combat is that the speed of lies is exponentially faster than the speed of truth. So when Israel attempts to put the truth out there, it's too late uh, because the lies have already hit the streets, the Arab streets, and there's already the protest because people, you know, the, the most don't want to hear the truth if there is some truth. And Israel has to be careful in the evidence they give for two reasons. First of all, they have to make sure it's correct so they can't be called on it later on. And secondly, in order to give the truth, they may, and I experienced this myself in combat, they may have to give up some of the intelligence capabilities they have that shows them how they got that information in the first place. There was a film I saw uh, within the last hour on the internet that showed uh, Hamas fighters going in and out of an underground tunnel to a hospital. Now that's several days later. Uh, so it, it's too late. We've already had the riots on the streets uh, of all the Muslim countries. Israel's already the bad guy. They're trying to commit genocide against the Palestinian people. So if you put that kind of film out three days later, it doesn't do any good. It can't counteract. You know, the other expression is is tr uh, lies travel around the world before truth gets its boots on or something like that. I can't remember the, the, the name of, or that particular quote, but it's all true in combat. There is nothing that will prevent lies from being the first report uh, from an organization like a terrorist group because they have the speed of the internet in today's world. It's a condition of the battlefield. Yeah. And again, it just goes right back to the whole point that I first started when I said, when Trump says that he can settle this, in 24 hours, I want my listeners to understand that, I mean, look, most of the listeners are of like mind between you and I. We clearly understand that Donald has zero capability whatsoever in order to resolve this. Forget about 24 hours, you know, not 24 days, not even, you know, in, in, in two years. I mean, you know, it's just a very complicated issue there's a lot of money that goes to palestine was it over three billion a year and they're using that money instead of growing palestine instead of benefiting the palestinian people and they're right their living conditions are abhorrent i have a friend who works with a whole a whole slew he's he's my best friend from like nursery to fourth grade and then they moved he and his family moved to israel and he was—he uh, called me up the other day just to, to say, I can't believe what's going on. He goes, yes, their living conditions are abhorrent. However, the money that gets sent to Palestine, which should be used for infrastructure, for building. Listen, they're smart people. They can do probably great things. The problem is that money never sees their hands. 
It never goes into legitimate business. It's all about paying for concrete and for munitions so that they could build these underground, you know, um, mazes that they have. I mean, I heard it's like 100 feet plus underground, some areas 200 feet below the surface. Right. Electricity, ventilation. I mean, these are real sophisticated tunnels. I hate to say it, that stupid us, we paid for. Yeah, in many cases. Yeah, the, the, the money is certainly siphoned off uh, in any terrorist organization. They're looking for ways to get funding. Uh, certainly learned that with Al-Qaeda and ISIS, that they are able to reach into government and get corrupt officials and, and do things like use the sale of fuel, uh, which Hamas has mm -hmm. also done, uh, and the hoarding of fuel for their own purposes and, and neglecting the citizens, the 2.2 million citizen, Palestinian citizens. That's all what terrorist organizations do. Uh, going back to your statement, though, Michael, if I, if I can be kind of crude on today because of what's happening in the news. Uh, no with, one's cruder than me, my yeah, friend. <laughs> with, with, with Mr. Trump, this is, a, this is a guy who doesn't even understand how the finances in his own organization work, uh, or at least he's corrupt in dealing with it. Uh, you know, the fact that he attempts to say, I know how to solve this kind of problem, which not only has cultural dynamics, but also mm -hmm. monetary dynamics is just laughable. It's just, you know, it, it's it's so ludicrous that you don't even you don't even want to you don't have words to comment on how ridiculous it is. But no, he's not. But how many people are parroting it? General, listen to the people on the street. They parrot it. Yeah. You know, oh, when Trump was when Trump was leader, the country was doing great. We would never have the war between Russia and Ukraine if Trump was president. We also would not have there would be no war between Israel and Hamas if Trump was. I mean, who the fuck is this guy? Right. I mean, was he Harry fucking Potter that he's got some magic wand, you know, and then he's going to, you know, shake the magic wand and it's all going to stop. All of a sudden, this guy is capable of doing anything. He could do everything in 24 hours. Immigration, he'll solve in 24 hours. You know, homelessness, um, climate change, you know, Russia, Ukraine, Israel, Hamas, everything he could resolve in 24 hours. And they buy this bullshit. And now... According to this New York Times Siena poll, <laughs> they have him in five battleground states leading. Now, I'm going to be very clear about something. I don't believe any of it. I really don't. It makes no sense to me. First of all, if you're black, they're claiming that there's an uptick in blacks for Trump. Bullshit. I highly doubt it. In fact, if you look at his rallies, there's always one two or three and they're always the same they're always the same black guy right. that's there and so because he's paid to be there you know um it's his his rallies look like clan meetings to be very honest <laughs> with you all right and i, I don't buy it at all uh, and how about muslims who are claiming we won't vote for joe biden under anything based upon what's happening here well okay i could understand today you're angry but don't take my word for it. Listen to the guy who said it himself, and I'm referring to candidate Trump, that he gonna, he's going to start throwing Muslims out of the country. They're going to go after kids who were protesting and, ex and ex uh, you know, expel them from the country. The very first bill that Donald Trump introduced in 2017 was a Muslim ban so why would you vote for somebody 
that's going to throw you out of this country. Yeah. Unless that your goal is to go back to, you know, whatever country that you originated from. It doesn't make any sense. It, it does. And what, I, what I'd say in response to all that is we've just spent a little bit of time talking about the complexities of this particular fight and how difficult it is. There, there are no simple answers to solving a problem that's existed for 1,500 years. Uh, it takes crafty statesmanship. Even those crafty and, and savvy statesmen and, uh, and di diplomats and military guys aren't going to get it right all the time. So if there's anyone on the street saying the kind of things, well, you know, ex-president could either solve or is responsible for all this, either side of those arguments is just ludicrous because, there, yeah. you know, what you attempt to do in government is move your society along and generate change over time. You can't solve all these kind of co complex problems. There's no way to bring peace to the Middle East, no matter how much Jared Kushner thought he did it. Uh, th that it, it took a step, but evidently it wasn't <laughs> good enough. Uh, so, you know, these are the kind of things. They doing. moved a building. That's what they did. They moved a building. Right. Okay, yes, there's now at least there's some relationship or starting. There was hoping to be a relationship between Saudi and Israel. Uh, hopefully that continues, and maybe, maybe that will be the impetus. So far, it doesn't show. But I want to ask you this because this is very similar in Israel, like what's happening here in America. You know, many in leadership, especially here in America and, and abroad, you know, our allies think that Netanyahu— should step down. I mean, his popularity in his own country has absolutely plummeted since the war started uh, October 7th. In your opinion, General, is it time for Netanyahu to say bye? It's time for him to go? And do you think that a change in leadership now, right now, further destabilizes the region? Or do you think that it gives them optimism? Yeah, I, I, I won't comment on whether or not uh, Mr. Netanyahu should step down as the prime minister. But what I will say is, I, I believe, having been a watcher of the Levant, uh, Israel, Lebanon, the other countries in the region, that there was a massive intelligence failure on the part of uh, the Israeli government and Israeli military. But that was because their prime minister directed them to look in a different location, and that was the West Bank. So whenever you have a, a leader of a country uh, giving the kind of directions that Mr. Netanyahu gave and takes your attention off your number one enemy, which is Hamas and Hezbollah, and says, we've got to use it for political purposes and gaining more ground in the West Bank, you're going to have the, the corollary problems that exist because you take your eye off the ball. Um, it, you know, it was an intelligence failure on a huge uh, level. It, it wasn't just they weren't connecting the dots like we didn't do during 9-11, which was an intelligence failure. Uh, they were not looking at the places they should have been looking. Uh, it wasn't a, a matter of not connecting the dots. It, it was a matter of not knowing that there were dots out there. Um, so I, I think, yeah, he is going to, to take the blame for that. I think most of the people realize it, but there are still, much like our country, the right wing people who are supporting Mr. Netanyahu because he's giving them, in some cases, what they want, more land in the West Bank. 
And at the same time, that's stoking more Palestinian disgust and hatred because he's taking uh, land away from the Palestinians. So it, it is all a measure of, of combining intelligence with politics. And it's another reason why we have to be very careful on who we and other, any other nation choose as their political leaders. General, again, because of your vast military experience, how many years were you in, in the military? 38. You actually called Senator Tommy Tuberville <laughs> cruel and irrational for holding up military promotions as a protest against the Pentagon's abortion politics. I mean, I know I got to repeat this because it's so, pardon my, my Yiddish, it's so fucking stupid. I truly don't understand this moron. Cruel, irrational, holding up promotions. Military promotions. So we right now have vacant slots because he has an issue with the Pentagon's abortion politics. So do me a favor. Please explain to my listeners how you think Tuberville's protest is actually damaging the military. And how long do you think that it's going to take in order to get back to what we are? We have, as far as I'm concerned, a perfect military. I really believe that we have a perfect military. And I think that people like Tuberville and his actions, they destroy it. Well, what, I, what I'd say, first of all, Michael, is, is we don't have a perfect military. We've got a good military. We've got, it can be great. We still have, as any good organization does, uh, things that we can improve upon. Uh, but what Senator Tuberville has done is, is create uh, a sense of distrust between the military and the politicians. Because, uh, truthfully, you know, I, I'm defending the generals and there's going to be a lot of people that say, oh, here's a general defending the other generals. But, but I know what flag officers do, generals and admirals. I know the dynamics of their moves, their progressions and what happens when they take over an assignment. I know how important, especially at the strategic level, these senior leaders are. Um, and I know how hard they work. Um, when you have someone who claims they know, like Senator Tuberville did, that he claims he knows more about the military and that the generals don't do anything. They're, they're just the guys that sit around in offices. And it's really, they, they, you know, it, it, it's just ludicrous. And it's hurting our force. And it's hurting it not only from the perspective of not getting the right people in the right job during a very dangerous time. But it's also hurting the families that can't move because as a general officer, if you're assigned to a position, he just said, well, put somebody acting in charge. Well, an acting guy doesn't have the same legal capabilities that a real life commander does. And secondly, an acting guy can't set the vision for an organization. It's like saying put an acting guy in charge of General Motors or IBM or whatever company you want to do. They, they don't have the ability to sway the organization in the directions they need to be uh, uh that the vision they need to have. But the other thing is it hurts the families because the, the flag officer can't move into the position. It's something called presumption of position. Uh, I was actually in a situation like that right after 9-11. I was going on to the joint staff from a field location and I was going in to be the chief of war plans, uh, the J-7 on the joint staff. 
And my promotion took about six months, not because anyone was holding it, but it was just the slowness of Congress. I could not go into the office and do my job until that promotion was approved by the Senate. Um, But the other thing it does is it affects the families because spouses, children, parakeets, dogs, cats move from place to place. You know, my wife and I were in the military for 38 years. I was in the military. She followed me around for 38 years. We moved 27 times. Uh, And you prevent that. And you prevent the spouse from getting a job, relocating the kids, getting them in school. This all started last March, Michael, and it's still going on. That means all the kids of those flag officers probably either had to be moved on their own expense to get into their new schools. The wives, the spouses didn't have jobs. Um, et cetera, et cetera. So you, you, you can't do things that you need to do. That's why I said it was cruel. And I don't think Mr. Tuberville, coach, as he likes to call himself, understands that what senior military leaders do in the services is a whole lot harder than a football coach does, even though he may have been working some days that were 18-hour days. He certainly wasn't doing the kinds of things that these military guys do. Uh, guys and gals. I won't go into the comparison, but it was just ludicrous. Um, But the other thing that I would say for the amount of effort that he's placed on this, what I would say is he could probably pull his staffers together and do this the right way. If he's got a problem with the policy, not of abortion care, but health care for women in the military, which is about 25% of our force are women, If he's got a problem with that policy, then I'd say, hey, Senator, pull your staff together, write a piece of legislation and let the other senators in the in the Congress vote on it. No, no, no. He wants to play performative politics like so many people do by destroying the trust between the military or attempting to destroy the trust between the military and the political body in Washington, D.C. So I've also heard you say, though, that the turmoil in our government has been sort of a gift to Putin and other autocrats. Yeah. Could you do me a favor, expand on that concept for my listeners? Because it's, it's fascinating. Well, I think uh, one of the reasons that Mr. Putin uh, attacked into Ukraine is because he thought he could. Uh, not only our government, but he saw NATO as having a lot of divisions at that particular time. And he had been watching them. Uh, Mrs. Merkel had, had just left as the, the chancellor of Germany. Uh, there were a lot of different uh, uh, approaches toward uh, the security arrangement, which NATO was. Uh, there were a lot of nations that weren't paying their 2% of GDP goal toward defense. So NATO was divided. Uh, they didn't have a singular focus in terms of their vision. And I think Mr. Putin saw the same thing in the United States. The, the, the divisiveness between Republicans and Democrats and within our nation and left and right and extremists on both sides. He saw, hey, if I were to attack, no one's going to do anything about it because I did the same thing in 2014 and bit off a chunk of Ukraine and nobody did anything about it then. So let's just go after the full ballgame. Uh, I think that was one of his considerations, as well as the economic issues within Europe with the the pipeline that he had created, the Nord Stream pipeline, that showed he could blackmail a lot of people. In today's world, what we're seeing is not only is Putin seeing that, but we have 
the, the Ayatollahs in Iran, we have President Xi in China, all seeing that the West is not divided even in critical issues. We have what, about 10 more days until our budget is due? You know, after after a bunch of people screwed around in Congress for, for three weeks trying to elect a, a speaker, uh, now we only have about 10 days left or so. I don't know the exact date count. But if if we don't pass a budget, I mean, that's that's a pretty simple act within a Congress where you pull together everybody to say, this is what we stand for and this is what we need to spend money on. Uh, all of those things are our colleagues, our foes, and our competitors around the world are taking a look at. And, and I see this because I talk with my former colleagues in Europe, particularly, and they, they ask me questions. How are things in the U.S.? What's going on? Are you guys really thinking you're going to elect Trump again after what he did to NATO the first time around? And, and I have to say, I don't know. Uh, it is so divided that, that, that there are different approaches to what we believe and we are failing to go back to truly our, what our national values are, and that's respect for people and the dignity that should be uh, administered to all and the civility that should be in our nation, because we haven't seen that in a long time. Do you know how we get our members of Congress to work together in terms of at least the budget? I actually have the answer for it. Right? And the answer is, see, unlike Trump, I will give the answer. Hold them financially accountable. For every day that the budget goes over, $5,000 a day off of your salary. Okay, there's a handful of folks that can afford it. You know, maybe they do care, maybe they don't. But most of them cannot. And that's their job. That's what they're being paid to do. If you don't do your job, you don't get paid. And you don't amortize it over 365 or, you know, 242, whatever uh, number of working days there are. Fuck it. $5,000 for every day that you can't resolve the issue on the budget. Watch how fast these people will start working together. Yeah. That's, that's my solution. Uh, and because I like that solution. They're not financially motivated. Well, and... I, first of all, I agree with that. I don't think Congress should get paid if, if some of our uh, governmental federal workers don't get paid, and that's what happens. Um, but I also think that the performative politics that's involved in some of this, I, I, I just, I, I wish, you know, my solution is we probably need to give a leadership class to all of Congress and say, this is how we move our nation forward as opposed to your performative politics and the use of X or Twitter to, uh, to, to, to represent uh, your, your constituent. It's not the right way to go. No, it's not. So let me ask you this, General, because with all that's going on in the Middle East, and I brought this up before, we really have lost sight of what's happening in Ukraine. All, all we see right now, all we're seeing is Trump on the stand Literally 24-7, all we're seeing, Ivanka's coming onto the stage, etc. We're seeing the rockets, we're seeing devastation, but nobody has talked at all about Ukraine. I haven't seen it in days. How, in your opinion, does that conflict end? How does Russia-Ukraine conflict end? And once again, just to poke fun at the bear, Donald cannot resolve it in 24 hours. So let me ask a professional somebody with decades of experience? Well, what I'd say, first of all, is Ukraine is doing much better 
than anyone realizes right now. They haven't achieved their goals that they had for their offensive operation that they were conducting over the summer, but I think they've gained quite a bit of experience in terms of how they should approach this war. My biggest concern is will the West continue to support at the level that they need? Uh, and, And I'm hoping they do. As different from the previous administration, when these kinds of distractors are coming up, it almost uh, consumed uh, the Trump administration. Uh, what, even though it may not be on the news, uh, the, the current administration is con- continuing to contribute to Ukraine's capabilities. Uh, they just passed an aid package, two, I think, two days ago or three days ago. It wasn't as big as a lot of people like, but they are continuing to, to siphon the kind of capabilities that Ukraine needs. Unfortunately, uh, Russia is getting a lot of help, too from both Iran and North Korea. Uh, they are, they are in improving their capability to fight over the winter. I think that's going to be the next strategic objective is Mr. Putin is going to try and uh, continue to affect the infrastructure of Ukraine. Uh, but Mr. Zelensky, I think, has a plan for continuing the fight. The thing that concerns me the most, other than will the West continue their support of Ukraine, is how much longer... Uh, can Ukraine support themselves? And what I mean by that is they've been on the battlefield for two years. Uh, their, their forces are tired. Uh, they are exhausted. They are fighting some really difficult fights, as, as difficult as anything we see in Israel on a daily basis. And we have taken our attention off of that fight. But as many people in Congress have said, this is an existential threat to Ukraine as a sovereign territory. And because of that, it's an existential threat for democracy worldwide. You know, there are some members of Congress who are continuing to focus on the fight in Ukraine, and that's a good thing. I know the president has not allowed that to leave his his focal point and his secretary of state, even though he's been uh, traveling all throughout the Middle East, there's still things going on. In fact, uh, last week, I think there was another Ramstein conference uh, where uh, Secretary uh, Austin uh, was leading the 50 nations in continuing to try and support Ukraine to the best of their ability. That was a blip on the radar. And today uh, it was reported with some great film that Ukrainian Ukraine actually sunk another Russian ship in Sevastopol Harbor. So things are moving, um, but the winter's coming. And, And that concerns me. It's going to be tough. So, you know, General, the hour goes by very quickly here on Mea Culpa. I have one last question for you, and it kind of ties into something that you just said, which is, you know, the Ukrainians, very much like the Israelis, the IDF, they have a real fight ahead of them. In one respect, you, you have Ukraine fighting a much bigger force, Russia, while Israel is obviously much bigger than Hamas, and certainly bigger than the Palestinian Authority, they still have these underground bunkers uh, and these mazes and tunnels and so on that they have to contend with, not to mention the Hamas soldiers integrating themselves into the areas with the Palestinian people. Yeah, don't call so them the soldiers, question, Michael. Call them terrorists because they don't have any... You know what? Let me rephrase that. You're 100% yeah. correct. Terrorists. Yeah. So let me ask you this then, because you recently said of the late and now great coach Bobby Knight, who I've had quite um, 
quite a few meetings with, really a super special guy, that years ago, watching him work with players during the closed practice actually helped you train your soldiers. If you can, what about Bobby Knight's methods inspired you? Well, first of all, he was tough, but he also had tough love. He cared for his soldier or for his basketball players. He cared for not only the ones that were on the court with him. And by the way, Michael, I should say that I am in Bloomington, Indiana right now. Uh, and I'm a graduate of IU, and that's where I met Bobby Knight, uh, as well as at West Point, where he got the nickname the General, even though he was a sergeant uh, when he was coaching the basketball team at West Point. Um, and, and we're actually going to talk to him uh, during a ceremony, to talk about him at a ceremony tonight. He cared for people. He wanted the best out of individuals. He was a tough guy. Uh, he certainly had his flaws and his foibles. Uh, he, he had some character dents uh, for sure. But the fact of the matter was he wanted to make other people better. And he stood for what was right uh, in terms of his sport of basketball. He wanted to show what right looks like to what right looked like to his members of his team. And, and what's great about him was um, even though if you ever played for him, if you ever knew him uh, and he had a connection with you, he'd stay with you forever. I mean, all you have to do is look at the story of Landon Turner, Landon Turner, who was a ball player for him and then got into a, an unbelievably bad auto accident and coach continued to care for him. The amount of coaches that are in basketball that were Bobby Knight uh, protégés uh, and he mentored them. I mean, they control the, the, the game of college basketball across the country today. Roger Alford at Nevada, uh, Mike Krzyzewski was at Duke. All of those guys played for him, and they turned into some of the greatest. And Mike Woodson here at, at IU uh, all played for Bobby Knight and took his teachings and applied it to developing other human beings. That, that's, a, that's a great skill that good leaders have. Um, Unfortunately, Knight had some bad qualities, too, as we all know about. He was a little bit of a misogynist or a lot of a misogynist, and he had a huge temper, uh, but he cared about people, and he wanted to teach them what right looked like in basketball. Well, General, again, let me say thank you so much for joining uh, me today on Mea Culpa. Um, I don't even know what to say. The world is so upside down right now. Uh, I love... I love your optimism and I love your hope and um, your obviously logical thinking. That's not something, <laughs> you know, clearly the former guy did too much of, especially think about, right, how he attacked even um, General Milley making statements that he's going to be on his hit list if he becomes president again. Seriously, a guy who's put in how many years representing this country Achieving the highest level? I mean, for God's sakes, General, I thank you, thank you, thank you, my friend. I wish you all the best. Obviously, there's going to be a lot more of this, so I'm going to ask you to come back. But thank you so much. Stay safe, my friend, and I will definitely be speaking to you soon. You got it, Michael. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. All righty. <laughs> all right. Take care, buddy. And now for today's mea culpa. Does a big win in an off election help Biden's chances in 2024? Well, it's hard to say now, but it certainly can't hurt. As I've said, Biden versus Trump poll numbers now can't be taken too seriously. 
considering where Trump is now and all of his legal troubles, we just don't have enough to go on. But one poll I think is accurate, is the one that says 52% of Republicans will not vote for Trump if he is convicted and serving time, compared to 28% who said that they will. Even Republicans aren't stupid enough to vote for a convicted felon. And I do believe that there will come a day when even the most hardcore maggots will realize that all these prosecutions are way more than a witch hunt. But until then, Trump is their guy. Wednesday night, the rest of the Republicans who want to be the 2024 presidential nominee, well, these, these folks just stood on stage and debated. But here's the problem, who the fuck cares? Without Trump, they're like a bunch of clowns looking for a circus. I mean, Tim Scott decided he better make a show of it. So, he clocked the most speaking time, but said mostly nothing. He claimed completely out of context that President Biden sent billions to Iran. Well, you know what? He failed to mention that it's six billion of Iran's own money that was frozen and is now being considered for humanitarian purposes. No, no Republicans love to turn nuanced situations into Biden-hating soundbites. But it's always fun to watch Nikki Haley go after the guys in these debates. I mean, she hates Ramaswamy and DeSantis in equal measure, and she's also not too fond of Scott either. She's the only one who looks viable at this point, but wait till she gets on stage with Trump who is promising to remake the country from the Constitution on down. There will be no debate. I mean, how can Haley compete with the likes of Trump? He has no facts to debate. He just has an agenda so fucking extreme that next to him, Haley will look like a lightweight. Then we're up to Chris Christie, who looked like he was coasting on Wednesday. Like he wished that he had gone to dinner instead of debating with these wannabes. And Christie is probably the only one who could hold his own against Trump in a debate. Something that I'd sort of like to see. But not really. I mean, what the Republicans are talking about in a big general way has nothing to do with what Americans want. Since the Dobbs decision, Republicans have failed and failed fucking miserably to see that it's a loser. And everyone on the stage but Chris Christie says that they are in favor of it. Now I'm gonna bet that Trump will eventually shock them all and come out as a pro-choice. And why? Well, because he wants to win. And the way to do that is to give the people what they want. So heed my warning, and as always, thanks for listening. Hey folks, if you'd like to see me live in person, I will be at the City Winery in New York City on December 9th at 2 in the afternoon. I'll have a great guest, it's actually gonna be Katie Fang from MSNBC, the host of Katie Fang, and I'll be taking your questions at the end. So get your tickets now at citywinery.com. Mea Culpa is written by Paula Killen. Our managing producer and editor is Lisa Orkin. Maya Culp is a Midas Touch podcast, executive produced by the Midas Touch Network and LSJ Media Group.